Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Beloved children's books come to life in an interactive exhibition at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. Later in the hour, we'll hear about Storyland, a trip through childhood favorites on view throughout this month. Plus, speaking of the arts, our series of local artists in their own words feature sculptor and cross-stitch artist Huckleberry Starnes. First, the soul-stirring music of South African singer Miriam Makiba earned her affectionate nicknames such as Mama Africa and the First Lady of Africa. Makiba's music was inextricably linked to her human rights activism, which made waves around the world. Her immortal voice is celebrated in a new album by the artist Somi with Zenzile, the reimagination of Miriam Makiba. This Grammy-nominated singer and musician recently relocated to Atlanta, and she joins us now via Zoom to talk more about her tribute album. Somi, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you. Not everyone in our audience may know about Miriam Mekiba. We're about to remedy that. Would you talk about her background and her legacy? Sure. Well, she was um, the first South African artist, well, really, I would say the first African woman to arrive on the global cultural stage. She was an incredible singer and also known for her political activism. She came over to New York in uh, 1959 under the auspices of Harry Belafonte. She went on to um, become the first African artist to win a Grammy. She became in many ways single-handedly the face and the voice of the anti-apartheid movement, really brought it into global awareness because of her celebrity in the United States. She was best friends with Nina Simone. She was married to Stokely Carmichael. I mean, so many, there are so many reasons that we should know more about Miriam Makeba. And 
I think when you realize what her story is, it's a bit surprising that we don't actually know more than, you know, given that she was moving in the upper echelons of cultural and political society in this, uh, in, in that time. I was a young girl. I was a little girl when she came to the United States, but then as a young girl, I remember seeing her recordings, hearing them, and I wondered, you are young yourself, when did you first discover her music? Well, I think, like many Africans, you'd be hard-pressed to find a home that didn't have some sort of Miriam Makeba experience or, you know, some sort some music of hers in their homes. I mean, definitely growing up in the 80s in Illinois, mostly. My family is originally from Uganda and Rwanda, but my parents loved her. So I don't actually know the very first time I heard her or when I was introduced to her voice. I will say as an East African, because there's a song of hers, Malaika, that is in Swahili, that that's probably the, the earliest, those are the earliest lyrics of hers that I remembered. Malaika nakupanda Malaika Malaika nakupanda Malaika Ningekuwa She's been a part of my kind of life, the, the sonic fabric of my life <laughs> throughout my life. And I, I really kind of was reintroduced to her much later when I decided to take the journey as a, as a singer in my own, on my own, in my own right. And I started kind of operating in this jazz economy, this sort of approximation to jazz. And, and actually, I would say it was reading Nina Simone's autobiography when she spoke about her sisterhood with Miriam Makeba that made me think, well, wow, I didn't even know that Miriam had this approximation to jazz. I didn't know that she was inside of that world in the U.S. in that way, that her transnationalism really was being, was read in that way. And so I was inspired to kind of look more closely, you know, and listen more closely. And I think in many ways that was the real reintroduction to Miriam Makeba when I started to really, you know, not take her voice for granted, if you will, and, and really pay attention. I'm so grateful you made this recording. I'm sure many people have told you that. Thank you. It goes back to, I mean, being a 12-year-old girl, hearing this voice and feeling captivated on the recording and she was so much of the time you talk about transnational as the face of the anti-apartheid movement and being active in the United States in the late 50s, early 60s. It was this extraordinary link between the American civil rights movement and the horror of apartheid all at once. And here were people being made aware of this through 
her gorgeous voice and music. What are some of your favorite songs that you reimagined on the album? You know, it was very hard to choose my favorites of Miriam Makeba, a lot of which didn't make it onto the, the album. A lot of, you know, it was because she had a 50, 60 year career, right? So I would say on this particular record, I mean, and speaking about the idea of struggle, there's a song, Hapo Zamani, which was originally recorded and written by a woman by the name of Dorothy Masuka, a wonderful singer from Zimbabwe and Miriam Makeba's contemporary. And it really speaks about what it would be for once the exile, those in exile come back to South Africa and how the oppressors should run, frankly, that's actually the literal translation is that they should run when they come because they're going to come back and take their rightful place in their homeland. I would also say, you know, the opportunity to record one of the many special guests on this record is uh, Lady Smith Black Mambazo, whom, you know, as many people know, are, are an award-winning, you know, beautiful a cappella group from Durban, South Africa, and at one point toured with Miriam Makeba during the Graceland tour with Paul Simon. <laughs> So it's really, it was really quite special to be able to record a song called Nongkongho, which is which literally means for those we love, and it's a song that honors those who fought um, on behalf of freedom and and died in that struggle, or were imprisoned during that struggle. So you know, obviously people like Nelson Mandela and Sibukwe and all the different freedom fighters. So that song, having the opportunity to record with Lady Smith Black Mambazo mm. was also quite moving. I can speak a little bit about the, the various guests on the record. Angelique Kijo was one of her 
mentees, I would say. I know that Angelique had a very close relationship with Mama Miriam. Um, I also have a range of other South African artists in it besides Lady Smith, which include Tandi Swamazwai, Msaki, and Duduzo Makatini, all of whom, they're vocalists, and Duduzo is a, an instrumentalist, but all of whom are standing firmly in that lineage and standing firmly in the work of you know, cultural memory and truth-telling on behalf of um, the people of South Africa um, and our incredible artists in their own right. Additionally, I have Sheon Kuti, so I wanted to represent the Pan-Africanist spirit as well as, as I said, Angelique. And then to represent that transnational conversation, again, as you mentioned, between the anti-apartheid movement and the civil rights movement and her long-standing collaboration with Harry Belafonte, I invited Gregory Porter to be a guest to do a duet with me on the song called Love Tastes Like Strawberries. And is full of extraordinary players, too. Thank you. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Somi about her new album, Zenzile, the reimagination of Miriam Makiba. You are... Astonishingly, the first African woman to be nominated in any jazz category at the Grammys for your vocal album, Holy Room. Miriam Makiba was never individually awarded, though, as you mentioned, her 1965 album with Harry Belafonte won a Grammy. How did you feel, Somi? when you were nominated for the award? You know, I was more overwhelmed than I guess I thought I would be. I think sometimes we don't realize the ways of being seen that we hope for. I don't think we realize how much we want those ways of being seen to manifest in our lives. So I was a bit taken aback by it. Honestly, I was very, I was surprised, I guess. I was and surprised in that I'm somebody who's a bit of an outlier in the jazz community, but even though I operate very much inside of the jazz community, I didn't set out to be a jazz vocalist per se. I'm a songwriter. I'm not someone who knows, you know, the beauty of, I, I, I don't know the range of, of, of all the jazz standards just pulling out of my, my belt with, with in whatever key. That's not kind of how I came to this music. I think I showed up in jazz 
because of the freedom that it represents and that it allows and that it insists upon and because of the voracious musicianship of people who identify as jazz musicians that I'm fortunate to surround myself with who have taught me so much and allowed and, and challenged me to lean into a certain type of freedom and I think that improvisation of the idiom of the jazz idiom really is in many ways a metaphor for my own kind of social and cultural upbringing in that I am an East African woman, Rwanda, Uganda, you know, born born in Illinois actually, and then lived in Zambia, and then you know now as a, as somebody based in between New York and and Atlanta, but as a musician, gets to own the 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 badge of a global citizen, right? And so. I think being seen in that space uh, was and continues to be, you know, it's, it's a humbling experience. I think the idea of being the first, it's one of those moments where it, it, for me, it just challenges me to think about, well, how can I use my platform to hold space for additional artists? And I think who are currently doing work and who are, you know, obviously will be behind, you know, my current generation and continue to, to, to move into the, bring Africa towards the center, you know. I think it's a very exciting time for the African continent, for African artists, and so I'm honored to represent in that way. But I think more than anything, you know, I'm honored to stand on the shoulders of someone like Miriam Makeba, who was the original space maker, right? Being the first African artist to really show up on the global cultural stage, as I said, and, and have that sort of visibility, have that sort of celebrity, and, and also demonstrate what it is to have that platform and to use it with integrity, with accountability, with truth, and without forgetting heritage, without forgetting struggle. I think if you, you know, as, as somebody who has had the opportunity to study Mama Miriam's life, she showed up with so much generosity despite so much struggle. Oh, yes. And I think, you know, the journey of an artist, of most artists, and not to romanticize it, it there is struggle, you know. And so I, I, to answer your question, I feel humbled by it and honored by it, but I, I, I also understand that I'm standing on the shoulders of people who made room, Miriam Makeba, Hugh Masekela, all these people who, who made room, you know whether we want to call it jazz or not, you know, and I'm grateful for that. I really appreciate this explanation because I read you discovered your musical identity in crossing the cultural bridge between America and Africa, and it seems you've channeled your African roots in a way that blends with jazz and soul music. Ideally, just your description of how the improvisatory aspects of jazz, I guess, are something of a metaphor for that freedom you sing about. Yes. I, I mean, as I said, I think the, the beauty of jazz is that it's, in many ways, the one genre that explicitly asks anyone on stage to improvise, even though improvisation obviously happens in all genres, but there's something about this sort of 
there's a demand for it. There's a, there's a holding of space. There's an acknowledgement of all of the voices on stage, not just the vocalist, right? It's an, there's an acknowledgement of saying, you know, I'm, I'm interested in hearing this voice and meeting me where I am. And I think there's something that that music has taught me or this, my journey inside of this music has taught me about kind of social malleability and open heartedness and exchanging ideas of freedom. So I, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I think that in many ways it's, it's been necessary to be able to improvise outside of the music in that, you know, this idea of being a first generation American woman, being a first, you know, a child of immigrants, being, choosing the path of an artist, it does require that we lean into to freedom. And, and I think, you know, I always say music is what saves me, you know, every time. So whenever, we've, whenever I feel as though I may, may be losing my way, then I, I know that I can always come back to the music and the freedom inside of it is, is, is what grounds me. It was Nelson Mandela, not long after his release from prison, who persuaded Miriam Makeba to return to South Africa. If Miriam were alive, and she would have been 90 in March, how do you think she would have responded to the current state of race relations in South Africa? I can't really speak to that. I can only, I'll, I'll share some of the sentiments that have been shared with me by my contemporaries and as other, other artists. And I think that everybody believes more could be done, right? I think the issue is still that, you know, black people are still the economic minority in South Africa. They still don't own the majority of the land in South Africa. Mm. So I think there are things that were fought for that still have not come to pass. So I think that would be disheartening, as I know it's disheartening to a number of people in South Africa, black South Africans, you know, and, and, and possibly, you know, non-black South Africans. I would like to hope that they yes. also, that everybody's interested in a certain type of equity. Not everybody, but, you know, a, a significant <laughs> number of people. So I can't say, you know, what she would have wanted or didn't want, but I know, I know that what she fought for, and I know there are still grave imbalances and disparities and a lot of poverty. Even though South Africa is also, you know, you go there and you, it's, an, it's, a, it's a wonderful place and it's very modern and there's all kinds of opportunities, but in terms of that wealth gap, I mean, this is something we see just, I guess, in capitalist societies everywhere in the world, but the kind of reparations, I think, that were expected, I don't think all of those things have happened. And that's unfortunate. You created a stage play, Dreaming Zenzile, also in tribute to Miriam Makeba. You wrote it, directed it, you play Miriam herself, and recently brought the Dreaming Zenzile show on tour. I know you played the Apollo. What can you tell us about? about the production. Sure, well firstly, I'm not the director. The director is the incredibly talented and very brilliant Liliana Blaine Cruz. <laughs> but oh, I, forgive uh, me. That's okay. But I did write it and I do have the honor of 
of playing the role of Miriam Makeba in the piece. So the, the first production was in St. Louis at the Repertory Theater, and it traveled to McCarter Theater in Princeton, in, and then it traveled to Arts Emerson in Boston, and is now, we are now in rehearsals. I'm just literally this week started rehearsals for the off-Broadway production that will open, well, previews begin May 17th, and it opens June 1st here in New York City, and will run through the middle of July. The show at the Apollo, because they are one of the co-producers, there are seven different producing entities around the play, and the Apollo is one of those um, entities. But the play, is they're, they're part of the production team for the um, upcoming off-Broadway production, but the show I did at the Apollo was the launch event, the album launch event, the concert. And then I was able to invite two of the vocalists from the record, Tandi Swamazwai and Saki, as well as Diane Reeves to be guests to mm. honor Miriam Makeba and celebrate her 90th birthday because the album came out on her 90th birthday, March 4th, what would have been. Mm. So yes, the play, it's meant to be a companion project to the album. I started this kind of larger cultural memory project seven years ago. I decided I was going to reimagine some of her music and make a record. But the more I started leaning into her catalog and wanting to understand you know, what she was going through personally, professionally, just understand kind of the biographical context around the making and performing of these songs, the more I, I realized I didn't know, even despite being a lifelong admirer of Miriam Makeba, I realized I actually didn't know much about her life. And that was a bit of a shock. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so began the journey of trying to make something, you know, with a little bit more dimensionality, you know, not to say that a, a, an album isn't dimensional, but it's, it, it, it's, you know, songs are ephemeral in nature, right? There's a reason we put a song on and play it on repeat, <laughs> trying to stay inside of that song. And so what I love about theater is it's an opportunity, it's, it's about world making, right? So this was an opportunity to try to construct the world of Miriam Makeba and invite people to reflect on her life journey. So the play takes place during her final concert in Italy, which you may already know in real life, she, her final performance, she finished the show, walked into the wings and suffered a, a fatal heart attack. And so part of the reason, like the album is called Zenzile, the reimagination of Miriam Makeba, and then the play is called Dreaming Zenzile, because I was very taken by the name Zenzile, which is her true name in Tosa, it's her true first name. And it means you have done it to yourself. And so to me, this idea of doing something to oneself, it invokes ideas around personal agency. And when I was thinking about how she died, you know, the fact that she finished the show, I mean, surely she was feeling some kind of way when she was performing to step onto the wings and ha then have a heart attack literally seconds after. And so it speaks to me about the agency in the way that she lived and, and honestly in the way that she died, right? In the fact that Perhaps, first of all, I would say that it speaks to the generosity of Miriam Makepa, right? The fact that she relentlessly would show up, that she would push through even perhaps the, the discomfort or pain she may have been experiencing in that moment before her final breath, right? And I think that is a metaphor for how she showed up in the world, right? And I think because once you understand how, how many things she was carrying in her life, all that she was navigating, it only makes it's so much clearer about how, how, how very generous she was, not only in voice, but in spirit. And I think we can think about her as a, 
as an icon in the anti-apartheid movement. We can think about all of these things and already speak to her generosity. But when you understand even beyond that, not to say that that wasn't already you know, so heavy and weighted, but to, to understand that beyond that, there were additional things she was carrying and that she still showed up with so much joy. You know, you don't think about Miriam Akeba and think about a melancholy kind of way of, 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 of being as an artist. You know, you think about the joy, the ferocity, the, the truth telling. And so this piece takes place on that last night and the conceit of the play is that the ancestors basically are showing up to tell her it's time. And, but she has to decide, right? Because she's Zenzile, she's the one who does it to herself, right? So in coming to that, that moment, that leaving, that transcendence into the, ancestral, into the ancestral plane, they take her on a journey. And it has been deeply rigorous and deeply rewarding. You've recently relocated to Atlanta, is that right? You said you are based in Atlanta and New York. Yes. Why do you want to make Atlanta your home base? Well, I'm still exploring Atlanta as a possible home base. Uh, I, I wanted to, I think I love the idea of being in a warmer city. I think that's number one. Um, I think. <laughs> this is the Illinois girl talking, right? <laughs> I grew up in Chicago. I know what you're talking about. So I'd love to be, you know, in a warmer city uh, and I'd love the idea that, I mean, there's obviously the cost of, of living is very different than what it is to live in, in Manhattan, New York in general. And I would also say that, you know, it's the third largest entertainment capital of the, of the country, right? So that was also really intriguing to me. And, you know, a longstanding community of, of an African diaspora that's thriving and doing so well. I think I, I'm, I'm interested in being near that as well. And um, so that's been fun to, to discover. I mean, I'm on the road a lot ever since I moved there. So I, have, I honestly, even though technically it's been my home, in quotes, <laughs> for just over a year now, I haven't been there very much to really, to really know Atlanta yet. But I'm enjoying you know, the discovery when I am there. Grammy-nominated singer and playwright Somi. Her album Zenzile, the reimagination of Miriam Makiba, is available now. You can find out more about her music on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, our series of local artists in their own words Speaking of the arts, today features sculptor and cross-stitcher Huckleberry Starnes. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Huckleberry Starnes, and I am a sculptor and a product designer, although these days most of my work is vintage-inspired embroidery. This pivot came during the pandemic while I was doing some research on a bowling shirt that I was curious about. And through this research, I realized that prior to computers doing all our embroidery, there was actually a person sitting at a hand-controlled machine that was manually stitching all of these designs and text on the garments. Workwear, gas station shirts, sports uniforms, varsity jackets, being pretty much anything that had text on it pre-1960s would have been made on these machines. The mouse ears at Disney with your name written on them are the probably the most visibly known use of these types of machines. One of the things that really attracted me to chain stitching was the machine itself, which is simple and elegant in its design. It looks very similar to an antique sewing machine that most people picture when they think of maybe their grandma's or great grandma's sewing machine, except that this one can sew in any direction. It's controlled by a handle underneath the machine, which is a spinning knob that rotates clockwise and counterclockwise. Whichever way the knob is pointing is the direction that the machine stitches. There's also a foot pedal, which controls the speed. And there are several knobs that you can adjust the height and the distance of the stitch to change the look. It's essentially a tattoo gun for clothes is how I best describe it to people. You're doing complex drawings, beautiful calligraphy, or even small detailed work with a knob that only spins clockwise and counterclockwise. It's a very interesting challenge and forces your brain to think about drawings and designs in a very different way. I'm inspired by everyday items that we see in our world, but especially vintage and antique items. There's something so pleasing about the simplicity of these products, partially because of manufacturing techniques, partially because of materials, but I think also form follows function was something that was much more important in past days. This of course makes perfect sense why 100 year old embroidery machines would become my obsession. You turn a handle, you can see the gears turn, you step on a pedal, the needle goes up and down and creates the stitches in the garments or whatever you're working on. And it's just a very pleasing experience to be part of. I moved to Atlanta in the summer of 1994, the day after graduating from college, with the promise of a job. Although, once I got here, I found out that job was not actually available, and I spent the next week working in my friend's studio trying to earn gas money to get home. However, during that week, I realized that I was surrounded by a group of amazing artists and artisans in the area that is now called Midtown West, and that the city was full of galleries looking for young artists and new artwork. And it was just an amazing time to be in the city. 
While there are some local stores that carry selected pieces of my work, the easiest place to see it is on my website, which is huckmade.com. But you may have already seen it on my customers at the local high school football game, or maybe sitting at the bar next to you or riding that motorcycle down the street, or even that person wearing the interesting hat walking down the belt line. Sculptor and cross-stitch artist Huckleberry Starnes and our series Speaking of the Arts. There's more information about Starnes and his work on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, how an exhibition at the Children's Museum of Atlanta is bringing children's books to life. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Beloved children's books have come to life at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. The exhibition, Storyland, a trip through childhood favorites, highlights seven children's stories in an interactive journey. Storyland opened in January and is on view through May 30th. When the show opened, I spoke with Karen Kelly, the Director of Exhibits and Education at the Children's Museum. It is fabulous. It is such an exciting journey through these children's book favorites. It's immersive, it's fun, and even more importantly, the underlying learning and messages under are terrific. It's all about kids learning about reading and language and building those skills. And in addition to that, what would you say is the primary educational focus of the exhibit? It really is about those skills. The primary focus is to help parents understand how they can support their kids' reading and language growth. So every exhibit has interactive elements between parent and child. There's also a separate exhibit that just talks about how parents can support it. Or parents are adult caregivers. I don't mean to be exclusive because families come in all sizes and shapes. Families come to the museum in all different ways. So it is just great for everybody to know how to support children's language and literacy, especially as they move into school. Yeah. I see that the experiences range for ages birth to eight years old. Yes. How do each of the sections cater to the different age groups? Well, for littles, there's a lot of things you can do. You can sit and listen to mom read a board book or mom or dad or whoever you're with read a board book. There is a toddler space always for kids, smaller children to engage in when you're little. For older children, there's lots of fun and engaging role play in the exhibit where you can actually crawl into Peter Rabbit's tree and be in his house with his bed and read a story to your sister, brother, and sister rabbits. Or for the book of Snowy Day, you can walk in the snow, not real snow, obviously, and 
feel your feet crunch. So you get that wonderful experience. And I think actually adults are going to have a really good time in this exhibit. There's places to build snowmen. There's, I don't know about your children, but Chicka Chicka Boom Boom, which is an alphabet book, was one of my children's favorites. And I must have read it at least 9,000 times. <laughs> Maybe some slight exaggeration there, but there's this wonderful tree where you match a capital letter to a lowercase letter. And then the letters go up the tree and at the top, they come tumbling down. Oh, just wow. like in the book. Wow. Who chose these seven children's books? The exhibit was developed by the Minnesota Children's Museum, which has a whole business arm of developing these traveling exhibits. So they worked with experts from local libraries, from library associations to pick these books. They wanted them to be wonderful and diverse, but they also are diverse in different ways. Like there's a wonderful book in there called Tuesday, which has very, very few words. So each page allows the adult and child to kind of interpret what is happening and kind of create their own stories. It's very fun. It's all about these frogs flying through their town on lily pads in the middle of the night. Karen, how did a concern for diversity inform the books chosen? They were careful to choose authors from different cultural backgrounds. The Snowy Day is one of the very first and one of the most popular, I think, still um, written by an African-American author, Ezra Jack Keats. And then Abuela is written by a Hispanic author. So they really were trying to make sure they were a diverse set of books from different traditions. It is also an exhibit that comes in Spanish and English. So, which is very typical of our traveling exhibits. The two primary languages are usually English and Spanish. And does the abuela section help teach children Spanish? The book does. And yes, the section actually does teach certain words that are in the book, also in Spanish and English. So the kids can pick up both. And what I loved about the book as well, so I think it came out a little after my children were young in that early reading stage, is that they have Spanish language in the book, but sometimes they don't interpret it for you. They let you try and figure it out from context, which I thought it was just a very interesting choice, not to assume people didn't know, but to how give them kind of context clues as to what these words might mean. Yeah. From what I understand, that's also a great way to learn another language. Just as we learn language as babies, we don't necessarily know the meanings. No, but the context clues and the things around it. So you're exactly right. And that's one of the things the exhibit talks about a little, is helping your children understand and learn that new words by figuring out how they fit into the sentence. Yeah. You mentioned the section in which caretakers and parents read to children. Why was this especially important to include? I think because, as I mentioned earlier, they are trying to educate adult caregivers and parents and others how to support your child's reading. And one of the best ways to do that is to read with them. It is always exciting to me how we have little reading nooks already around the museum how frequently I find parents reading to their children in the museum, sitting on a beanbag chair or something and reading aloud. So this exhibit just provides those opportunities. 
where you can sit and read and talk about a book. And then you're surrounded by the story while you're reading. So how fun is that to be surrounded about the story you're reading about? It's very special, as is the act of sharing a book, a story itself. I remember just our fascination, my husband and I, with our children as babies being wrapped in a simple board book, but our realization that holding them closely was uh, enabling them to equate reading books with love and physical affection and nurturing, and, and they just all combine. That's exactly right. The whole thing all goes together. You mentioned a few of the activities that will surround these books. Can you tell us a bit about each of the seven books and any of the museum's surrounding activities we didn't hear about? So I mentioned already about Peter Rabbit, where you have Peter Rabbit's house you can go get to, but there is also Mr. McGregor's garden and the shed where Peter stole the vegetables from. So you can also arrange the vegetables, do it, and you can harvest the crop using can, little canvas bags, just like in the pictures in the book. Um, I mentioned the snowy day, which is, for those of you who haven't read the book, a child's exploration of his neighborhood after it has snowed. So you, like I mentioned, you can walk along Peter's footprints. Peter is the little boy in the book. And then you can build snowmen using giant felt shapes and also give the snowman a face, you know, and arms and a different hat and different outfits. And you can arrange snowflake tiles printed with different descriptive words. So they'll have images on them, but you're also moving them around and learning about these descriptive words and learning how adjectives are so important in our language. Something when my son was younger, he goes, I don't know why I have to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, I mentioned Chicka Chicka Boom Boom with the giant tree where the letters go up. And it also has some wonderful tactile giant letters like in the book. And then there's an ABC beach where you can dip the paintbrush into a water-filled well and write letters or words on a rock surface. And there's a coconut jam cove where you can beat out rhythms with steel drums. This is another area that will really appeal to younger kids because they can they have instant gratification by banging on the steel drums. <laughs> and some of us older folks as well who just love steel drum and reggae and island music. Yes, exactly. And then Abuela has a giant statue of liberty, like the head and the arm holding the torch. And kids can get behind it and look through the windows, the windows at the very top of her crown, just like they're in New York City, looking at from the top of the Statue of Liberty there. In this exhibit, it is important to look up because when you look up in the Abuela exhibit, Abuela takes her granddaughter Rosalba on this imaginary journey where they are flying over New York City. And so if you look up, you can see Abuela and Rosalba flying above your head, surrounded by clouds. Being in New York, there's a tourist telescope to look through photo views of New York. And you can design your own park using magnetic pieces to range things. After that one, um, if you give a mouse a cookie, perennial childhood favorite. 
This is another great reading space with kids, but also has a fun interactive where you help to design your own cookie recipe. And you can choose between real things to put cookies and maybe not so real things like trains to put in your cookies. Again, I mentioned about looking up. If you look up, you'll see a giant yellow straw popping out of the top of the recipe section. And then in Tuesday, the book I mentioned earlier about the frogs, there's a giant clock tower in the book. So you can see the clock tower. You can open the doors to trace the numbers. So again, this is a lot about language. So in literacy, so there's lots of numbers and letters that you can feel and touch and move. So you see them, but you also have tactile experiences with them, kind of appealing to different learning styles from the children. And there's a living room, like the scene in the book, where if you look out the living room window, there are the frogs flying by. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get to go visit the frog swamp that they have escaped from on these lily pad leaves and play some more percussion instruments to create swamp sounds. My favorite thing at the end of the book, there's sort of a surprise at the end of the book, which probably I'm not giving away to your listeners, but at the end of the book, it's the next night and pigs are now flying through this town. Oh, if pigs could fly. Pigs could fly, exactly. And it sounds like they will be at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. And the last book is Where is Spot, which is filled with like lift the flap. You can read books from the series, not just the first book, but the whole series of books. And I mentioned about tracing the engraved letters, and then you can open doors and find visual surprises. When I reread the book, it had been a minute, I was surprised at how many exciting creatures were in this house when they were looking for Spot. There was a bear, there was an alligator, there was a giant snake. And if I had been Spot's mom and looking for him, I might have done a little screaming along the way as I was looking for my child. Yeah, and I've repressed all those memories (laughs) from when I read that book to our kids. And then there is a flip the tile section where you can recreate different pictures from the books. And the last thing I want to mention, again, for adult caregivers wanting to know that sort of importantly about how they can support it. There is a literacy panel that talks about how literacy really begins at birth. And it has audio clips demonstrating how adults can support pre-reading and reading skills with even the youngest children down to babies. Oh, that's fantastic. It's a very, very rich exhibit. Karen Kelly, Director of Exhibits and Education at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. Storyland is on view through May 30th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org. This weekend, the Atlanta Chamber Choir Coro Vocati presents their spring concert, Live the Questions, exploring the impact of the pandemic on how we view time, love, heal, and live. The works also illustrate the healing power of music. The program will open with Elaine Hagenberg's piece, Songs from Silence, and include works of Bach, Mendelssohn, Moses Hogan, and Jake Rundstad. The concert is this Saturday at Morningside Presbyterian Church and Sunday at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church. 
More information is on the website corovocati.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the filmmaker behind Geographies of Kinship, the powerful documentary explores the rise of Korea's global adoption program and the personal histories often lost in the process. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.